0: Um, A little bit of a a shorter talk today, just because I got a class to teach (laughs) this evening, um, and the day kind of ran away from me, I I didn't realize uh, how late it was. So just a little bit of a discussion on, on, um, uh, basically on on the sort of training history uh, that people have, because in these podcasts... What I try to do is uh, just kind of have a chat about something I've seen recently that people are discussing, or maybe questions I've received, or anything like this. Things that I think are causing a bit of confusion, or that maybe um, I have an opinion on, I suppose. Um, And one of those things that keeps coming up uh, is about the usefulness of prior training. Uh, This is especially true in the martial arts, um, and especially true for arts like Tai Chi. Um, Actually, mostly Tai Chi to be perfectly honest, because there's this, uh, if you're not familiar with it, there's this kind of idea in Tai Chi that you should abandon all physical force, uh, which people have varying, have different opinions on as to whether they think this is hundred uh, percent true, like all physical force should be abandoned or whether it's not abandoned or whether it's not true or whether it's even possible. It doesn't matter like what people's opinions are on, on such things, but this kind of idea of abandoning physical force at the absolute minimum, Gets translated often as you shouldn't be doing external techniques. Um, so what what that often means is that a tai chi teacher will then discredit any prior training that you've previously done. So wh- I don't and I don't agree with this by the way. But so for example, what happens is if you've done karate or you've done Shaolin or you've done Wing Chun or you've done White Crane, Prey mantis, MMA, kickboxing, I don't know, whatever you do what happens is you turn up and when you learn Tai Chi you have to um, give up all of those kind of practices or principles is the idea or often what happens is those practices are denounced as some kind of inferior training or something like this. Now this is where it gets complicated because in actual fact if you wish to get really good at Tai Chi like you want to master it you know you want to go to the highest possible levels of Tai Chi if that is your endeavor um, then it's true actually Um, other things should be abandoned. You you can't go to the highest possible level in Tai Chi and also do Thai boxing uh, in the same way you probably couldn't go to the highest possible level in Thai boxing and do Tai Chi. If you want to go to the highest possible level in something you have to throw yourself totally into that one subject. But then again not everybody wants to go completely to the highest level in it so you know in that case people should find what works for them. Um, but even if you do want to go to the highest possible level of it, one thing you should recognise is even if you, you decide to discount all of your prior techniques, so maybe maybe you're going to become a Tai Chi master. And because you're a Tai Chi master, you're never going to use uh, clashing forces or, or, or percussive strikes or anything or any of the kind of tools that you would associate with Shaolin or, or something like this. But you have a Shaolin background. Um, so maybe you denounce all of the techniques, but what is often missed is you can't actually or it's very unlikely for you to be able to denounce or get rid of everything you learned from that system. It's almost impossible because some people still think that martial arts are very much like an external shape thing so for example a style might teach you this shape or this shape or a style might teach you this shape or or this shape or or whatever Uh, but they discount the fact that the shapes actually change the inside of your body it doesn't matter whether it's internal or external You're going to transform the way the muscle fibers line up. You're going to change the way that the joints are functioning. You're going to change the muscles, the tissues, the tendons. All of these things are going to change the shape of your body and inside, you know. So I think it's a bit strange that people don't recognize that because, uh, I mean, even if I were to sit on this couch for 10 hours a day watching TV, watching reruns of when things go wrong or whatever it is people watch on TV and I was going to do this for hours and hours and hours. My body would change shape to match the sofa. The sofa would change shape to match me, but I would change shape to match the sofa. So, that shape would then be stored in the tissue memory and the muscle memory, and you could argue that probably my circulatory system and lymphatics, I don't understand such things, but I would assume they would function differently as well, because essentially what has happened is my body has transformed to make my body more efficient at what I'm doing, uh, and what I'm doing is sitting on a couch, so if I'm here 10 hours a day, I'm producing the most efficient body I can for sitting on a couch, that's what the body does, it makes you as efficient as what as it possibly can at what you do so if what you do is watch TV it will give you the perfect body for watching TV if what you do is eat pizza for a day it'll give you a perfect body for eating pizza you know that's what the body does it will transform in that direction so if I have a martial art that does something like this and something like this and something like this it's going to transform the inside of my body my tissues and my muscles will line up the the tendon structure will change so that that movement is, is built into me So, that's called hardwiring sometimes. I think it's kind of the modern term people use in martial arts for it. Build hardwiring something into your system. So, when you then change to a system that has a different way of working, like Tai Chi, would that undo it? Yes, yeah, it would. So if I have a technique that's always contracting, contracting, or twisting, or bending, but then I have a system that's opening and releasing, opening and releasing, then the opening and releasing is gradually, over a period of time, going to unwind all of the tension that's built, and essentially take the plasticity of that shape out of your structure. That will happen. But will it ever happen perfectly? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. I think there will always be it's not even what I think actually, it's what I've seen, it's what I've experienced. There will always be a slight memory of that pattern built into your body. In the same way that your brain can store every memory maybe, or something like that, or your nervous system stores things inside the body, so will of the layers of plasticity within your fiber system, you will always store a little bit of it. So is that a bad thing? No, I don't think so. I don't think so at all. And this is really what I wanted to talk about because you take someone like myself for example, so my if you just look at martial arts because I'll, I'll apply this to Qigong in a second as well. My martial arts background started with karate uh, when I was very young, which I did a lot of, like a lot of years of. Um, but uh, within my body, stored within my system, doesn't matter exactly what order I did them in, but essentially I also have um, Wing Chun, I have Long Fist uh, from, from Shaolin Systems, I have quite a bit of White Crane actually. Uh, on top of this I have, oh God, I did loads. So I had, there's probably Kendo and Iaido built into my body, there's Aikido, there's a whole list. Like if I listed all the external martial arts I did for a period of time, long enough that it was built into my system, there's quite a lot. There's also Chen style, in my body, even though I'm a yang stylist primarily, uh, you know, and then there's the Bagua and Xing Yi. So all of those things have been there. Nowadays, uh, my focus is mostly gong actually, but for internal, for martial arts training, it's Tai Chi and Bagua primarily, that's what I do. Um, so I don't do any karate, I don't do any shaolin, I don't do anything like this. And, and the reason I don't do them is partially because I don't have much of an interest in them. But partially also because they hardwire a different program into your body to Tai Chi and Bagua. So they become a little bit counterproductive, um, a little bit. Now the reason it's counterproductive is because I wish to do my Tai Chi and Bagua as best, as well as I possibly can. So for me the highest goal um, possible within that art is what I'm aiming for. So I don't wish to do something that builds another pattern into the body. But at the same time, some of that patterning is still always going to be stored in me. So does that mean that I have a karate tai chi hybrid? No, not at all. My, my power and my mechanics are expressed from tai chi, but somewhere stored in my system are those arts. I also have um, some background uh, knowledge in, in boxing and ground fighting uh, and all these kind of things. Do I want those things to go? No. No, not at all. Like, I'm happy that they are there. Uh, they are still a part of what I am. When I move, if I wish to move fast, my fast twitch muscles um, are still very much conditioned by what I've done and, and so I can still move quickly. I'm still light on my feet. Um, getting a little heavier, now I turn towards 40, but still light on my feet with a bit of spring, a bit of snap. Skills that came from other arts prior to Tai Chi. Do I feel they detract from the Tai Chi? No. Would I do those arts at the same time as Tai Chi? No. I wouldn't. But at the same time, they're still built into my system. On top of that, there are the mental qualities that come from the arts. And sometimes people don't realize this, that each art has a mental quality. You only have to look at the vibe you get when you go into a different class or subject. There's a very... Di- okay, it's generalizing, and I apologize, but there tends to be a very different crowd drawn to, say, Aikido, than than boxing or or, or um, karate to um, Wing Chun or something. They're very different kind of people, you know, and, and of course everybody's an individual but there's a kind of vibe and I'm sure if you've been around long enough you've been to all the different classes or the different styles you'll recognize what I'm talking about now part of that is because you could say those people are attracted to that art that's true but also partly that art creates a kind of mindset a kind of um persona on top and you see that with anyone who's been in a martial art a while the the biggest thing people are influenced by is kind of the characteristics of the art but also the characteristics of their teacher Um, which is why your behavior as a teacher is very very important because it will pass on to your students hang on a second, this is tea, cold tea not coke, Mm. just before I get a lecture on Coca-Cola consumption is cold tea. So um, all those arts are built into you Uh, why is that relevant? Well I think it's relevant because if you look at say Tai Chi and you look at the people that are influential, say there's someone you look at who's really like, I want to be, you know, this person's Tai Chi is good, or we look at the people right now who are quite well known in Tai Chi in the West. All of the ones that are at the top of their field also have an extensive background in other martial arts prior to doing Tai Chi. Sometimes they don't want to talk about it, or it's kind of like the skeleton in the closet, but they do have extensive knowledge of martial arts prior to doing it. They've all done either karate or boxing or, or Shaolin or something. They've done something prior to doing their Tai Chi. And and to the untrained eye, you can't see it in what they're doing, but I've been around a little while and actually when I watch them, I can still see it in their bodies. It's still there. In the same way that I could see in my form, there are things there from my history. That training history is still there. The vast majority of the people who are good at Tai Chi historically, maybe not the the sort of um you know the the pure sort of family lines or something, but most of the others actually have a background in external martial arts, too. They also have that background. So why is this relevant? Well, it's because I wanted to critique, not criticism, not criticize, but critique, one common error that I see with teachers or or masters even. Can you critique a master? It's probably arrogant, isn't it, but I'm going to. Is that often a, a teacher or a master will try to start you from where they are. And the consequence of this is that if you start where they are, you never get to where they are. It's just what happens. So, say for example, you got you go along to a Tai Chi teacher, and the Tai Chi teacher has twenty years of boxing and ground fighting and wrestling and blah blah blah, and they've done twenty years of that, and they're thinking, do you know what? I just want to focus on Tai Chi. They do Tai Chi, and then what happens is someone comes along to do do Tai Chi with this person. They will never get that person's Tai Chi skill. It won't happen because they haven't got the extensive background in martial arts that the other person has already got. You can't get the same results unless you walk through the same journey. So if a teacher authentically wanted you to get exactly the same results, and I'm not saying they would because everyone's path is individual, but say just for argument's sake, they wanted you to get exactly the same results as them. They would have to get you to walk exactly the same path. So in all honesty, they would have to say, look, you're going to have to do, um, you know, if you want this, how can I do what you do? Okay, sure. Well, you're going to have to walk the same path. You're going to have to do the same martial arts. And, and then even then, will that produce the same results? No, because people's life experience also accounts for what they've achieved as well. Because ultimately, style is only something that we use as a tool to change ourselves. And the result of ourselves, including our skill set, including our mindset, is a result of every experience and thing we have studied prior to this this point, it all adds up and takes you to that place. So you can't start someone where you started. This also happens in um, uh, Qigong or or meditation or something like this as well. Um, You'll get someone who's achieved an awakening. Do you know what I mean? Like a a spontaneous awakening. And and this came up the other day in a discussion online, um, which was uncharacteristically friendly for an online discussion, I'd like to add. Because normally online because of the anonymity, I suppose everybody tends to get a little bit rude with each other. Um, but this was a very polite conversation, so that was nice for a change. But uh, it came up that um, people were saying that there's people who've achieved in meditation spontaneous awakenings. and the teachings, which I'm sure you've heard yourself, are, you know there's no need to strive, there's no need to do anything, um, there's no need to have a method, don't push, don't aim for something, and then a light will arise and then what happens is they have their awakening. True, they've had their awakening. Maybe they're a highly realized person and then people go to train with them and do those people ever get an awakening? No, none of the students ever do. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Why? Why is that? Well often it's because if you look at the history of the person that achieved the awakening they also have an extensive history of trying really hard before that. How many times have you heard this story? I spent nine years doing meditation and then five years doing yoga, I went to meditation and Reiki and I went here and I I followed every master I could, I traveled all over the world, I found every guru and I tried my hardest, I spent years in caves in isolation and I didn't get anywhere and then one day I was sat in a field and I, I realized the union of existence and I had an awakening. So what happens is that teacher, for some reason, in their infinite wisdom, decided that that moment in the field when they sat there and had a spontaneous awakening was an unrelated event to anything that had happened before, which I think is really peculiar because one of the great laws of the cosmos is that everything depends upon causation. So why did that person sit in that field and achieve an awakening when no one else did? Was it because they um, didn't strive and they just relaxed? Yeah, possibly. But the causation was already in place from the many, many years of hard, arduous work that they did before. So will somebody be able to sit in a field and have a spontaneous awakening with no effort like they did? No, of course not. Because they need to do the many, many years striving and pushing that they did first. You cannot relax away from striving until you have strived. It's one of the weird enigmas of of how all of this stuff works. You can't rise above something that you can't do how could you if you haven't done it how can you rise above it you're just avoiding it or something you know so all these people that have had spontaneous awakenings are generally rising above or relaxing or stepping away from all of the striving that they've done but the striving set up the causation to lead to that relaxed event are there exceptions to that rule of course there's always exceptions to every rule but in the majority of cases that's not what happens so really what should happen, a teacher of meditation who had a spontaneous awakening from sitting there and doing nothing and achieving union with the cosmos should actually take their students through the process of striving that they went through. They should, even though that striving didn't specifically lead to awakening, you're establishing the causation qualities in the student's body so that perhaps they also have the ability to step off of the path at the right time and achieve awakening, but but who knows? Now. You can never do the meditation part for the students. You can only do the striving part. It's just a fact. Now in martial arts, it's the same. If someone came to me, not that I'm, I'm not really a martial arts teacher, you know, I'm mostly a, a Qigong teacher or, or something, but people do come to learn martial arts of me, and they want to learn Tai Chi, and, and, if, and really what I do, if they really want to learn it sincerely, is I make them do external training first. And that's the opposite of what some teachers would say. Uh, and some other teachers have been down on the way I do things because they're like, oh, it's just doing external stuff. Yeah, but I want that person to go through a similar path. So they need to, maybe not do years and years, but at least have to know how to move their hands, how to move their feet, how to structure their body, have a little bit of strength before they relax away from it, understand a front kick and a snap and a hook and a cross and all of these things. They need to do that first. So I try to take people through that path to give them a similar kind of um, step-by-step process that takes them to that place where they can then start to study um, relaxed power and sung and things like this so that you can kind of recreate the path for them as the best you can. You'll never recreate it 100 percent but they've got their own path anyway but it does confuse me as to why so many teachers don't realize that that if you've walked a path to get to a point you can't then disregard the path that got you there and say it wasn't import- important. Of course it is. It's a part of your history and if you're going to teach people they'll need to do something um, similar. They'll need to walk Uh, the path themselves so you should have if you're a sincere teacher some of those tools that you can give people um, to help them through that that process and whether it's a hundred percent successful of course it won't be but you're helping along the way uh, as much as you can and this confuses people because I mean I don't really I'm not interested in fighting or combat at all Um, and I get a negative reaction for this sometimes from people who are into martial arts for fighting um, and they'll say, oh, but then you're just doing forms. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't jump to assumptions, quite the opposite. I do a lot of fighting. I do a lot of groundwork and striking and sparring and and locks and kicks and strikes and all the things you would associate with fighting. But I still don't have an interest in fighting, not at all. It's not the act of not doing the fighting or not doing the martial work that I'm against, actually. It's the mindset. So all the time when I'm doing it, it feels more like playing to me than anything else. Now. Some people can't see that, because if you're doing something that looks like a strike, you must be violent. It's true. Not true. It depends how you do it. Play fighting is not fighting. You know, definitely not. It's the mindset that's the problem. But when I uh, teach people, I have to keep the fighting there, because even though I don't care about it, and I'm not interested in those techniques, and I get super bored in partner work. I mean, uh, an example of this is push hands. I find pushing hands so dull, but it's a part of what people need to do. They need to go through that process. So because I'm a teacher and I want people to get somewhere where good, um, then I will still teach push hands and I still teach martial arts. I still teach wrestling, wrestling and grappling. I don't care about it, but other people need to go through a similar kind of developmental process to get to where I want them to be, which is ultimately when I can teach them mental qualities, which is where my um, main interests lie. Pushing hands is a funny one there as a side note because uh, everybody thinks you're fascinated by push hands, if you do push hands, you know, and, and I remember how fascinating it was when I started, but after many, many years of push hands, I, I find it really boring. I've got no interest in it at all. Um, and everyone's interested in the Fajin and they think you're going to be fascinated about it too, but no, not at all, not in total. It's so boring. What's the point of Fajin? It's so dull. What's the point of, but you still have to go through the process to get there. What I am interested in is mostly meditation. to be perfectly honest, but all of those other things have led me to that point, so other people need to go through that journey um, themselves uh, definitely, and that's one of the advantages of teaching, one of the advantages of teaching as well is it forces you to keep sharp all of those tools that you don't really use for yourself anymore, but those tools mustn't get rusty because they're still a part of your repertoire, so it forces you to do all of those, those things, I mean I do so many foundation drills because I'm teaching that I wouldn't normally do. If I wasn't teaching, I wouldn't do them. I probably should, but I wouldn't, but because I'm teaching, I do those foundation draws rather than just working um, on what I need for for my practice. So that's a bit of a roundabout way of saying it, isn't it? But basically what I'm saying is your history has led you to where you are. Where you are right now is not an isolated thing that other people can do. They need to do um, a similar journey themselves. So if you go to a teacher, what I would advise is don't just look at what they're doing, look at what they've done. Look at their training history as well, not just what they're doing now, because it doesn't matter how many times the teacher will tell you that all that stuff is a waste of time. It hasn't been a waste of time is if it has been a part of their history and where they are now is very interesting to you, then that history has been a part of what made them what they are um, right this time. That's just a fact. It's an absolute fact. I haven't met someone who's really proficient in Tai Chi. And I mean really proficient. Who doesn't also have a background in external arts? Does that mean they use the external arts and pretend it's Tai Chi? No, not at all. They're doing. I would. I'm saying they're really good at Tai Chi, but they still have that extensive background. It's built into their subconscious somewhere. Maybe they're not using that exact arm lock or something like that, because it's not about techniques. It's about qualities. But those things are still built uh, into them. Still built into them somewhere. And again, I'm sure there's exceptions, because what will happen is people write under the comments, I met this guy who did Tai Chi on his own, and he was good, you there's exceptions. But in the majority of cases, and certainly in the cases of the people I have met, um, there is an extensive background that led them to that point. Same with meditation. Never believe the teacher that says there is no need to strive. Look at their training. I bet they had a long period of striving first. In Taoism, they say the path that can be walked is not the real path. But there's still a path. The character for Dao shows somebody walking along a path. The implication is you must walk along the path. Is it the true path? No, because at some point you have to step off of the path, but you have to walk along the path before you can step off the path. You can't just start with no path. You have to go through that process. Um, and then once you get to that point, you can just stop striving. And then it's kind of like when you relax into subconscious or whatever you want to call it, then all of those caus- causations come to the fore. It's like the relaxed background information of your prior training is what then springs forth from that relaxed state. Wu Wei, non-doing, right? Why does non-doing work? Well because when you relax all of the doing that you've done will bring to the fore all of the things that are already there. So the doing must be done before the non-doing. And this is an important part of every martial artist, every meditator, every qigong practitioner, every yoga practitioner, every cultivator's path it is there. They all have a path you must look at the path to understand where they are. And it's on another note. Do um, do understand that that if someone uh, is a teacher of something and they have a previous art, a good example is Tai Chi people being against Karate, isn't it? Because especially if you're in the UK, maybe it's different in America. Because I think you had a lot of Chinese people go over, and so uh, lots of Kung Fu in the sort of 70s and 80s. England actually was mostly Japanese arts and a lot of karate. So almost everybody who comes from the UK who does Tai Chi but has been involved in martial arts for a long time normally has a karate background or judo, generally. And, and so one of the things you'll always see is Tai Chi people going, oh, karate's crap, karate's crap, uh, and, and bad-mouthing it yet most of them have karate in their background somewhere. Some people haven't really made the bridge from karate to Tai Chi, so they still have karate techniques in what they do and it's kind of a weird amalgamation. But the ones who have stepped into Tai Chi fully, who don't have karate techniques built into what they're doing, still have the karate mindset or, or that's the wrong way of putting it. They still have some qualities built into their bodies, which are there. The way that the bones are formed, the way that the tissues are formed are still still have that benefit of that external training but they'll often look back and, and slag that art um, but I think they're focusing on the wrong thing because what they're focusing on is the things they were taught the contraction and, and stuff like that and the qualities that were counterproductive to Tai Chi but they're not and that's true those ones are problematic they have to go they have to be released but they're not focusing on the positive qualities that they got from that art as well do they really think if they're proficient in martial arts they would have got that proficient at where they are without their training history, they wouldn't have done. And and karate is a common example of that because it's diametrically opposed to Tai Chi. I've seen so many people try to equate the two and say they're the same. They're not, they're diametrically opposed to the the two, uh, to each other, but that doesn't mean that there are not benefits from the karate training that has influenced the body of a Tai Chi practitioner. There's certainly still something within my body to do with the the solidity of the bones and the, the sort of strength of the joints and the way that kind of certain things are sort of built together and the strength inside my body that has come from karate as well as the mindset that is still within my body, even though I don't use the techniques. I couldn't remember a karate cat had to save my life and I wouldn't remember how to tie a karate belt. And I certainly don't use the techniques and I've certainly abandoned the kind of power that comes from karate because I focus on the internal arts. But that doesn't mean the benefits aren't still in my body. Um, there's still a certain degree of strength uh, and structure and stability there um, that is from that. Tai Chi purists will hear that and be very negative about it, but they're missing the point. I would say often they are in denial of the prior qualities they have that are within their system. When I see someone who's done pure Tai Chi, especially of the Yang style, they often look a bit gooey, you know. <laughs> it looks like a lot of Tai Chi practitioners could go away and do with a little bit of boxing or wrestling just to um, help them help them through, help them through their training. Karate is a funny one actually, isn't it? Uh, because <laughs> karate in the eighty was hilar- in the eighties was hilarious, um, because of course what happens when when a new culture comes in it's all exciting, and I remember karate in the eighties it was a very exciting thing and everybody was doing it. everyone was joining karate because it was all new and and I, there was Bruce Lee on the TVs but there wasn't much kung fu in England so you know karate was what everybody uh, went to and nobody knew anything about it, so what happened was people <laughs> people started doing the forms and the kata but they also adopted the mindset um, of of the art, of the style. So really if I think about karate, you have three influences uh, and you know I'm, I'm on a sidetrack here but three influences for the karate mindset and this is normally what you got when you went into the class. If you had a class that was very very close to the JKA, the Japanese Karate Association or the KUGB, the Karate Union of Great Britain or very close to the kind of Japanese people that were coming over, people adopted the Japanese mindset and it was quite funny, you would see them talking English but they would even adopt Japanese accents um, or uh, that sort of, uh, the sort of, sort of gruff kind of Japanese mindset and the kind of militaristicness of the way the Japanese taught that that carried over, and that's still very much a part of many karate associations. And um, that was the kind of line that that I came from. So that kind of, um, if I had to take one quality from karate that I gained that was very useful, it was that it was the discipline and the sort of Japanese level of focus that I don't think I would have got from the Chinese arts quite so well because it doesn't tend to be emphasized or not by the people that taught me anyway but that that focus was very very important to me they came from that kind of Japanese I suppose that Japanese martial mindset um, that was very helpful to me but then you had two other main influences in karate and it always makes me laugh and these came from Cobra Kai and mr. Miyagi <laughs> and that might sound really daft but basically nobody knew anything about martial arts in the 1980s or how you were supposed to be but there was a, a load of films came out called the karate Kid films three of them I think and then there was a fourth one with a girl when social justice came around and then a fifth one with Will Smith's son but the first three featured this annoying guy called Daniel LaRusso but he who studied karate and basically if you haven't seen it because you're too young everybody my age or older will know what it is there's two characters and one was called Reese or something he ran a dojo called the Cobra Kai which was really extreme it's like no no surrender no mercy just kill kill it was like a really You lose concentration of fighting your dead meat. Yes, Sensei. What? Yes, Sensei! The um, over-the-top sort of parody of of martial arts training. And the other school was Mr. Miyagi, which was very philosophical. And he trimmed bonsais. And it was all about sort of deep Zen philosophy. Actually, most of it was stolen from the Dadajing. But it was about Eastern philosophy and very soft. And of course, he was the good guy in this extreme sort of sweep the leg, get a body bag. Get him a body bag! Yeah! evil karate the Cobra Kai was the bad ones but I remember in the 80s that because people didn't have any real information on what martial arts was supposed to be they often emulated those so when you traveled around from club to club what you either found was Japanese militaristic style or the Cobra Kai or Mr Miyagi's <laughs> Dojo. and it was funny that they modeled how they thought you were supposed to be on martial arts on whether they preferred the, the Cobra Kai or, or the Miyagi-Do Um, system of Karate, which I I think was funny. Now the reason (laughs) reason that that sprung to mind that amused me was because sometimes, I think it was a couple of years ago, I was in America. Where was I? I was in California somewhere and I stuck my head through some Karate dojos that were on the the street Um, and obviously this is many generations of teachers, probably three or four generations, two three generations of teachers later. I don't know, I can't remember, maybe just one. I don't know, but whatever, these classes were there. And they still had it. You could still see the Cobra Kai influence or the Miyagi-Do influence on how they were, they were running the classes because the ethos, the mindset hadn't changed, um, which I thought was really funny. You could almost see them all in there and their black geese shouting, no mercy, no mercy, no mercy. And I just think, isn't it interesting how one mindset can filter into and pervade through an entire art, even if it's a nonsensical uh, mindset. It doesn't go. And there's just a sign of how much influence that a teacher has upon the students so they can sort of pass this line on. But I wonder how many karate schools know this? How many karate schools in the West know that the energy and the mindset in their class was established by Cobra Kai and Grandmaster Reese or whatever his name was, Sensei Reese? <laughs> Who knows? So, a bit of a rambling one. But like I say, I've got a class to teach in a minute. Uh, so I just thought I'd have a chat with you a little bit, because that's what these podcasts are about. I still get people moaning on you saying, where's the instructional parts? It's a podcast, it's me chatting to entertain myself. Really, that's really what I'm doing. I'm chatting to entertain myself and talking about various concepts and not really worrying about instructional things. Uh, I do enough of that, I'm just chatting, it's a podcast. So, no, there's nothing instructional on here. But the thing I wanted to talk about on here was just this idea of causation and how every part of your history leads you to where you are. So it doesn't matter how many teachers or masters talk about how they found the real well and everything they did before was a waste of time, they're mistaken. Nothing that they did was a waste of time. It was something that contributed to their history. It was part of the causation chain that led them to where they were, even if they trained in Cobra Kai.